Welcome to Agile Clips. In this episode, our guest is Linda Rising. She is a speaker, author, and recipient of the 2020 World Agility Forum Lifetime Achievement Award. Today's topic is change. We start with misconceptions about our ability to help others and organizations change and go on to techniques for achieving long-lasting changes. Although the focus is agile, the discussion is wide-ranging and applicable to some of the biggest and toughest challenges we face in the world today. Hello, everyone. We're so delighted to have uh, Linda Rising uh, with us today. It's a true honor. Uh, for those who don't know, she's uh, the 2020 World Agility Forum Lifetime Achievement Awardee, I suppose one would say, uh, with the likes of Ken Schwaber and Ron Jeffries. So absolutely uh, amazing person who we all respect and love. And so we're just very, very fortunate to have her uh, with us today. And I would like to ask Linda to actually add a little bit of color to my introduction with a little bit of her life story. Well, thank you kindly for that wonderful introduction. I, I live near Music City and I like to tell everybody if they've never been to Nashville, Tennessee, that we are open for business and we have music of all kinds. So even during the height of the pandemic, the orchestra that I direct was rehearsing in my garage. Wow. We had groups of eight. So we'd have little small groups meeting eight at a time. And then after rehearsals, we had several outdoor performances. We did a Beatles concert and a Christmas concert and a Pops concert and a patriotic concert. So I'm definitely a believer in music. I think that's important for your brain. And these days, it's important for your sanity. There's no better way to express agility than through music. Very good. I, yeah, I think the only real time I spent in your neck of the woods, Linda, was actually for my uh, honeymoon. Uh, ah. It was very brief. Just um, drove up there from Birmingham, Alabama, which was where I was living with my wife at the time. Well, and we went to see the Prairie Home Companion at the Grand Old Opry. <laughs> oh, of course. So um, ah, that was a few years ago now. Yeah. <laughs> the Grand Ole Opry is still running and uh, the downtown is very busy. Of course, most of that is outside and most of the bars that are open on Main Street are uh, sort of outside. So they kept going even during the pandemic and there's lots and lots of any kind of music you want. That's fantastic. That's fantastic. Because right now, the times they are are changing, eh? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. That, that's rather your specialization, isn't it? Um, you know, particularly within organizations, actually helping them with, you know, change management uh, rather than just the, the agile washing that some of us have seen where somebody on high goes, oh, get the teams to do that agile thing. It'll all be better soon. So we, and we can also see that in other phases of our lives right now, mm -hmm. those of us in the U.S. are facing uh, incredible hurdles in many domains. We have a vaccine, but we have a lot of people who are resistant, and there is no clearer dividing line right now in the U.S. than those who are lining up and anxious to get the vaccine and those who are resistant and those on either side are looking at the others saying, well, what is wrong with you? 
What do you think it is that actually has people resist change so vigorously? Well, I think it's because we all believe that we're smart. That, that could be a flawed assumption. We, we all think we're smarter than we are. You know, there are, are lots of studies. I'm, I'm not just sharing my experience, but lots of research that shows we all individually, so the result of research is not just about other people, it's about all of us. We all think that we're smarter, that we're better at making decisions, that we see things clearly, that we're rational decision makers. We all believe that. And so when we see someone who doesn't agree with us, either because they don't like the change that we're introducing or they don't support the effort that we do or they differ from us politically, well, we think that they don't, they're, they're missing something or um, perhaps all we have to do is explain it to them. Hmm. We just need to give them more information. And that's what we're seeing across the country right now is information. So someone from the CDC or some high political person will get on television and say, now look, here's the data. Here are the numbers. Surely everyone will see those numbers and they'll be convinced that the right thing to do is line up and get vaccinated. And so they believe that will be convincing. And we all make that mistake that we think because we're smarter and that we make our decisions rationally, that we do it because we've looked at the evidence, we've looked at the data, and we've made that decision rationally. That is probably the single biggest change mistake that we all make is that flawed assumption that because we're smart, we're rational. And then what it takes is facts, logic. So if we're in an organization, what we do is we get a nice PowerPoint presentation and it outlines the benefits, the data, the evidence, why this is such a good thing. And we explain it to the people on the other side. And if they're smart, well, they should look at this and they should be convinced. We all believe that <laughs> and it doesn't work. <laughs> in the face of that, even in the face that of it not working, then our way out is usually to say something like, oh, well, those people, they must not be as smart as I thought they were, because if they were smart, then they would have looked at my argument, they would have seen my data and they would have been convinced. We don't see that the flaw is really in the process of convincing other people with logic that that does not work. That what's, there's a wonderful quote, isn't there? Which is something like, uh, a man persuaded against his will is a man unconvinced still, or something like that. I've yeah, or that you can't, you can't talk somebody out of a stance that they didn't arrive at logically, which is the same kind of message, I think. We don't make our decisions logically, and so someone can't move us 
by using logic. Yeah. It's that false belief that we have that since we're smart, that's how we made our decisions when it is not. I don't know about the rest of you, but I've certainly heard it said, and my experience would support it, that people make their make their decisions emotionally, they make their decisions with their gut, and then they justify them rationally after yes. the event. That's right. And and so you never want to tell people, I'm giving you a lot of information from fearless change now. So somebody kind of can put a little plug in here. If anybody wants to do <laughs> a lot more about this, you could just read fearless change and more fearless change. Yeah, you don't want to throw away your nice logical argument. You want to have that and you want the people that you're trying to influence, you want them to know that you have that because when you do convince them using some other approach that might be more successful, then they can tell themselves, oh, well, I decided to go this other way. And now they can haul out the argument that you were going to use so that they can justify to themselves changing their own minds. And that's called rationalization. We got to have some reasons. If somebody says, well, why'd you decide to go get vaccinated? I thought you were opposed to that. And they go, well, I did look at the data and it's pretty clear that right now I live in Tennessee. Tennessee is the worst as far as cases of COVID per thousand residents of the state. But that's not why they changed their minds. So you need that argument to hand over to them so they can have some way of sort of tap dancing around their decision when the real reason had nothing, absolutely nothing to do with that logic. I've definitely found that if you, if you approach a situation asking people, what are they dealing with right now? What, what would actually be something that they could use some help with? You know, we're at just sometimes just asking them, well, how do you feel about this? Yeah. Or what do you think about it? Or just get them to talk to you and listen. This is another pattern in fearless change. Mm -hmm. this, this works for just about anything I can think of is just sometimes all people want to do. And it doesn't matter whether it's some highly resistant laggard who's close to retirement in an organization who is going to resist any new thing you bring into that organization because really deep down he's terrified and this usually is a he he's terrified that he's not going to be able to keep his um, status in the organization because he's going to have to start all over again and learn this new approach it doesn't matter whether somebody like that or someone who's terrified of the vaccine for a whole host of reasons, who's one of your neighbors. It doesn't matter. They all want to tell you about it. And all you have to do is be open to say, I'm not judging you. Tell me how you feel about it. What are you thinking? And in the midst of that story, while they're telling you how they're suffering because of, or they know somebody and something bad happened or whatever it is. And it doesn't really even make a whole lot of sense in many cases. But in the middle of that, if you just show that you're open, non-judgmental, that you respect them, that you know how difficult this is, 
you don't share their point of view, you're not out to convince them or influence them, you're just listening, one person listening to another, many times, that's enough. You don't have to do anything. You don't have to have haul out any facts. You don't have to say, oh, well, what you're doing now, it just really doesn't work very well. They already know that. Meet them where they are. Yes. So meeting them and that uncovers so many things. The yeah. assumptions they made, the emotional things that they have or whatever that situation is. Just yeah. meet them where that's the starting point. Yeah. Because you, you, you don't know why they arrived at this decision and you may never be able to know. And in and many cases, they don't know. But that it, magic interaction, and, and since I've been doing it for decades, it still seems like magic to me that I don't have to do anything. All I have to do is show that I care about this person, that I'm interested, I want to hear their story, and then get out of the way and just listen. You know, some people say, well, that's active listening. There are lots of listening techniques, but it's a human thing. It's what we really do well is to reach out to somebody and say, you know, how do you feel about that? Or why do you feel that way? Oh, I see. Oh, and then your, your grandmother said this and then, okay. Oh, and then your daughter did that. Oh, I see. And, you know, to just with respect, without be curious. I'm, I'm really curious. Why did you decide to do that? Right in the middle of it. I've had people say, you know, now that I've been talking to you, I think maybe I will go in and I'll get that vaccine. Mm. Yeah. And, and where did that come from? Or, or in, in organizations, I, I have so many stories about grizzled veterans who cornered me and say, you know, this agile stuff, it doesn't work. We tried this, you know, five years. We tried, you know, this is nothing new. It doesn't work. Like, oh, really? Uh, well, what happened? Well, it had, we, and we're on this project and the, oh, I see. And you did this. Oh, yeah, it didn't work. And blah, blah, blah. And right in the middle of it, I'll say, well, you know, maybe my team could try it. We could try it. <laughs> okay. And I didn't do anything. I didn't argue with them. I didn't haul out the data. I didn't say, you don't really understand. Agile is different from what you, I don't do that. We feel like we must straighten out the world. I mean, my mother told me that. She said, Linda, you are going to get in trouble someday because you're always trying to straighten out the world. You can't do that. Everybody uh, has to find his own or her own way. And all you can do is be available and be the listener. You, you're going to listen them. That's so important, Linda. I mean, as somebody was saying to me the other day, actually talking about AI, they were saying, look, data doesn't care. Data doesn't care. And it's something that I've been deeply unhappy about is how over the 20, 30, 40 years, depends where you start counting, the Agile has really developed. But it's kind of turned into, you know, there's now the phrase, the agile industrial complex. And I think there are some real concerns that the, 
turning it into this big certification engine and training engine means people are jumping on board as a career opportunity rather than getting into it, as I know us three did, because we we cared. We saw people suffering at work. We saw rotten products being released to a public that didn't care. And we, but that's, no, <laughs> no. Let's get some heart back into it. Let's have people actually be back at work as something where it's a full self-expression for them and they could actually be themselves. And certifications don't do that. Yeah, but it was, uh, I guess, a sign that it, it has a level of success because yes. in uh, things I've been a part of in the past, like the patterns community, for instance, the patterns community never had to deal with that because the patterns were written and they were put not put out there and you know they never made a lot of money and they, they, they didn't have that appeal. Whereas Agile from the beginning has pulled in a lot of people who could see the business opportunity even people who were also that I knew from the patterns community, they were different now because Agile's a very different kind of big ball of wax that you're gonna sell to the community. It's got things that patterns did not have. Mm -hmm. And you can see the different pathways and how it's grown and changed and yeah, it did pick up lots of people who want letters after their names and who were interested in doing things that I still don't understand. I go, what are they doing exactly? But they're charging a lot of money for that. And I'm not sure that's a good thing. But on the other hand, as an optimist, I would say, I think that means that Agile has had more success. Yes, no question. Having having all of the yeah. um, certifications has promoted it. It's made it into a yeah. well-known thing. But it's that dear old law of unintended consequences, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So <laughs> it, It's funny, isn't it? The data doesn't do it. No. Power doesn't do it. No. Just trying to bully people into thou shalt be agile. Yeah, no. although you, you do have to say that power does get what's called compliance. And that's what you see in the beginning. Somebody who has a lot of power, like a, a powerful vice president in charge of development will come in and say, now, all right, now we're gonna all go agile. That does work, at least on the surface. If people feel the pressure from somebody who has a lot of power, then you do get compliance. The problem with compliance, and this also goes back to the some of the problems with Agile that now we've got people who are trying to measure, well, how Agile are you? And, and are you doing Agile right? Whatever that means. So now we have compliance issues, certification issues, and that means overhead. Somebody has to watch. Somebody has to make sure that when the vice president said, we're all doing agile, well, that vice president meant something. And now we're gonna measure that and we're gonna make sure that all the teams are in compliance. And so that takes a certain amount of overhead, which only increases. And then what people do when they have to comply, 
they typically fight back and they find some way of doing what they've done all along, but they fly under the radar and they make sure that they meet those whatever they are, that the measurement guy who's going to come in and make sure that they're doing, they're going through the motions. They do that. But underneath, no. And so all the benefits, the real pluses for doing Agile never appear. And that's when people say, well, well, this Agile stuff doesn't work. Well, of course not. Because all they're doing is the guy came in, he said, here's the song, I'm gonna play it for you and I want you to march this way. And so everybody lined up and they said, okay, yeah, we can do that. But that's not, that's not what Agile is all about. Now so you mentioned, yeah, you mentioned power. earlier, yeah, yeah, power. And you mentioned earlier people being frightened. Well, the yeah. trouble with power and compliance is that people then are basically trying to stay out of trouble by yes. complying, because if they don't comply, they're going to be in big trouble, you know, yes. Yes. Um, as opposed to people who actually deeply understand a problem and the benefit of, of solving it. And actually, you know, they may or may not be inspired by that. Some may, but the very least they get who would benefit from their work and it's worth doing. That's really different from staying out of trouble. Yeah. Well, I think the other thing is they try to game the system hmm. so that you know they look good into the uh, formula and the other thing is uh, they're always looking for what's in it for me yes. and that is the fear that oh wow now what is my job going to look like or where am i going to fit into this so those are the kinds of i guess resistances <laughs> that subliminally keeps on coming. You know, they will give you the lip service, do the yeah. thing, but and as Linda was saying, underlying the things, it's same old, same old. Yeah. The, in psychology, they, all, they call that reactance, that when people are pushed in any direction to do something, even if it's something they believe in, even if it's something that they would normally support when they feel pushed. And that's again, back to the vaccine. People are feeling that they have to. When we feel that we have to, otherwise there's gonna be a penalty. We can't get on that cruise ship or that airplane, or we can't go into that business. When we feel pushed like that, then our natural reaction is what the psychologists call reactance. And we don't like that and we push back. And so it's certainly not a good way to influence people to do anything. It's to come in and say, you must, you must do this or we're gonna fire you or you won't get promoted or we're gonna move you over here and you'll be an individual contributor, whatever it is that that idea of using power to move people around never gets real change. It gets that resistance that's gonna pop up somewhere, somehow. And then the attempt to monitor or make sure that you're checking off the boxes and that overhead only increases over time as that reactance comes out. So logical argument doesn't work power, all the power in the world 
There's so many stories throughout history of, of kings and demigods trying to get people to do something and they were not successful. It doesn't work. If you had your agile magic wand, Linda, <laughs> and you could go into a big transformation and bing, change something that would actually allow things to transform. It's an overused word, but I'll use it. What would, what would it look like? What would, how would your magic wand work? I wrote a book about that. <laughs> <laughs> because I, at the time when it was going on, I didn't even know what I was doing. That was the very first agile transformation, or actually it involved patterns and, and agile. It was a series of happy accidents and it could never have happened except in the one place uh, where I was working, which is AG Communication Systems in Phoenix, Arizona. And because of the culture in that organization that encouraged me to experiment, and that's what we did. It's, I, I simply went to several teams and I said, you know, I've been reading about this stuff. Uh, it looks really interesting, but I don't know. I'm not an expert, but you know about the current product that we're working on or this attempt to try to save the company with this. You know so much about that. I'll bet you could help me see if we could use any of this at all. Would it help? And they would volunteer and say, oh, sure. Well, this looks, we could try this little piece in and see if it works. And then, and then if it does, we'll, we'll go over and tell other teams. I didn't have any agenda or any plan. There are so many consultants who, and I know I've been uh, a victim of that in a way. If you go into an organization, that's what the high level individual who brought you in, that's what they want to see. They want to say, well, where's the plan? We want to all be agile by next June. How are you going to make that happen? And I said, wait a minute. You know, this is something called a complex adaptive system. And there is no way that you can say next week, we're going to be doing this. And next month, we're going to be doing that. And six months from now, we're going to look like that. That's impossible. We can make some guesses, but no, we don't know what's going to happen. In fact, it could be that if we're not careful, we could even move backwards, not make progress at all. Yep. But we have to have to have an experimental, we'll try this. Mm -hmm. We don't know whether it will work. Some version of this might help, but it might not. And they have to be open to that. And all problems are local. So if this team is successful, that doesn't mean that you can just pick that up and move it to the team next door or the team in the building on the other side or the team on the other side of the world. These are all made up of different individuals who see the world differently. So it's all about, and that should be the message of Agile, isn't it? Experiment, learn, feedback, make mistakes, pick yourself up, and say, well, that didn't really work. Let's try something else. And then make progress, you hope. 
No, it's trial and error. Yep. No guarantees, no big plan. Yeah, you can plan what, maybe what you're going to do next week, but what's going to happen in six months? Ah, I have no idea. Yeah, I think one of the things that somebody told me is a change that somebody owns it, then the change will stick. Yes. And as long as they can see that they have ownership to that change, then you don't have to push them. Yeah, the, the, the pattern in fearless change is called ask for help because the first thing you do if you're coming into an organization is give it away. Say, I can't do this. I don't know this organization. Now, I know something about Agile. I can help you, but you, you're the one who's going to have to do this. So will you help me? And as soon as they do that, soon as they say, well, okay, I guess I, I could help you. I could try it. And they go, ah, now it's theirs. Yes. Yeah. And, well, and they, they'll know what to do. They're better at, than you are at making that decision and deciding what to do. And then all you do is just say, thank you. Oh, thanks. Oh, great. Your team is doing so well. And I'm so happy for you. And yeah, ask for help. Admit what you, you, you don't know what will work for this organization. It's the people who go in and say, all right, here's the plan. And I know exactly what to do. And I'm going to tell you how to run your business. That makes me a little concerned. I'm not sure that ever really works well. And then oh. you go away and, and now what happens? I was very glad to hear you use the term complex adaptive systems. Um, oh, yeah. I'm an old hand with Kenevin. Ah, and sure. um, absolutely. Um, it's one of the things that I found that sometimes just over a cup of coffee with the back of a napkin. If I explain Kenevin to somebody, they'll, they'll suddenly say, oh, gosh, well, of course. we've been relating to all of this as if it was ordered and we could actually know what we're doing. <laughs> it's not. It's emergent. So we have to experiment our way into it. And it might take as long finding out what doesn't work as it takes to find out what does. Yeah. Oh, that's the, that's the problem we find now with climate change. Mm -hmm. is what, what, what do we do? We don't know, but we should begin to have some trials and some experiments and see if we can move things in the right direction. But instead, we're waiting for some kind of pronouncement yeah. or a plan or some kind. Of, it's, it's a big problem, so there must be a big solution. And organizations are the same is that they don't really, they're not looking for a little tiny thing. Mm. So we must have this timeline where we can see major steps, progress toward our goal, when really it's a series of the pattern and fearless changes, baby steps. That's how you learn to walk. You took a little step and you fell down. But you got there, every single one of us, we, if we had been in the same room, we would have walked into that room. So we, we figured it out, but we didn't have a plan and, and our parents didn't bring in a coach and we didn't have lessons. We just took a step and fell down and then, and then took another step and fell down. And we did that over and over and over, but we figured it out. And that's exactly what we have to do is yeah. little, little steps is little things, lots of little things. 
I, I feel sometimes, Linda, as though our education system is kind of working against us, that the way how it sets people up to have to succeed, to have to get straight A's, to have to qualify, to have to get their bachelor's, their master's, their PhD, and then they're employed to know what they're doing and paid to know what they're doing. And then poor loves, bless them, they suddenly find that they're in a situation which inherently is one where they can't actually know what they're doing. So small wonder they're terrified. Um, it, it feels like a lot of our work has as much to do with um, uneducating as it has to do with educating. Trying to, trying to pour more data into these poor people's heads is just more education. Yeah. I'm not sure if you know the physicist Lawrence Krauss, but I have a quote from him in one of my presentations that he said he teaches physics at the college level. And he said, I always try to give my students problems that have no solution, that, that can't be solved, because that's what they're going to have to do. When they go out into the world, no matter what their role is, every problem they're going to face, whether it's a problem with raising their children or getting along with their spouse or a professional problem with some, most of those have no solution. And if we train them to just find the right answer, so you find the right answer and then I'll give you a good grade and then you'll pass the course and then you can get a degree and then you can move on. But that's not what's really gonna happen when they graduate. The problems that they're gonna face are those of complex adaptive systems where there may not be an answer where all you're ever gonna do is have a series of little experiments, of little trials that never ends. And you're not ever gonna to get to the point where you can say, yep, we've done that, climate change is solved. We figure that one out, so thank you. Thank you to all the smart people that have been working on that. This is probably something we're gonna to have to live with forever. So it has no answer. Yep. It, it, that's one of the great learnings that I got from being taught Kanevin. When it's a complex adaptive system, if you change something, maybe to solve a problem, now you've got a different system. Changes everything. Changes everything. Changes. So next time you think you've got the same problem showing up and you try and apply the same fix, and it doesn't work, nope. and then you're in trouble. <laughs> oh. <laughs> that's right. And that's, that's why I'm a believer in patterns but mm. it's a flaw because in the patterns community, we do tend to adopt that mindset that once we've seen what we define as the context, once we're in a context, we think, oh, this is the same context. So I should be able to apply that solution that I know worked before to this particular problem. And then we should get the solution. Well, no, it's very hard. To do a, I was a mathematician before I became a computer scientist. So you can't do a topological map between one environment and another. There's always some little thing in the context. And now your solution probably not going to work. So that was the hope. That was the dream of the patterns community is we could some kind of codify entire domains by saying, well, Here's the context, and here's the problem you face, so here's the solution. And it was flawed because the contexts never match up. 
Yeah, I, I think I, uh, when I was doing my computer science, we used to have pseudo AI. Basically, it was a rule-based system. So you applied rules over rules over rules, and then it becomes, instead of artificial intelligence, it becomes artificial stupidity. Not <laughs> be applied everywhere. And, you know, yeah. <laughs> so so I think, you know, we, should, we should say some positive things. We should say some things that do work that we, we did talk about listening, but the other thing we could talk about that it is a very positive thing that is a hopeful thing. And that is stories that hmm. when we talk to each other, like if I want to tell you about some idea I have, or I have something that I want to introduce a change in this organization, one thing I can do that that works successfully is move it to the aisle of metaphor and tell you a story. And the story has to match what you are seeing in the world. So I have to know you well enough so that this story will mean something to you. And what we know from looking at fMRI scans of people who listen to stories, that the brains of the teller of the story and the listener to the story, they begin to look the same. The same areas of the brain are lighting up. So it's as though we're in sync somehow. And the person who's hearing the story wants to hear what happens and wants to hear, will there be a happy ending? Will the handsome prince rescue the princess? And will they ride off together and live happily ever after? We all love a happy ending. Whereas if I go into you and I start telling you, well, here's the logic or the facts or the rationale or reasons why you should do this. When we look at those brains in a scanner, they don't look the same at all. And instead what we see is someone who's hearing all those reasons, they begin to look for flaws are they, what's wrong with this? They attack it. They're not in sync. They don't care. There is no storyline for them. You're not engaging them. What you're doing is getting them very angry and upset and nervous and anxious. So stories, if they're good stories, and especially if there's a metaphor, your brain loves metaphors. If it's a nice metaphor, that doesn't explicitly tell people what to do, but because their brains can look at that metaphor and say, oh, I see, I see how this fits with my situation. And now you're telling me, oh yes, this story has a good ending. People love stories, especially if there are stories about people they can identify with, people about people who are like them, who suffered in the same way. So story, stories are so powerful and we don't do enough of that. I mean, Steve Denning has written a lot about the power of storytelling. He's a, a you know, major, major contributor to 
everything agile and he's definitely advocate of stories. So he's a lot better at that than I am. But the power of finding the right story, tell somebody to help them out. Ah, that's very, that's a very powerful technique. Yeah. Well, that's patterns actually working for you, isn't it? I mean, that's yeah. what the metaphor is doing. It, yeah. It's like if you're running an agile training and you have a game. Now, I've learned that I don't call it a game because somebody in the room is going to go, well, we're not here to these stupid games. Blah, blah, blah. No, <laughs> it, they're metaphors. They're metaphors where we can actually rehearse something that would be risky in the workplace, yeah. but has a pattern or a meta pattern or a meta program or whatever you want to call it, that back in the workplace, some part of you will be going, oh, this is like that. <laughs> Oh. <laughs> we have to be we have to learn to be a bit sneaky don't we linda <laughs> yes, that's right and words matter yes vocabulary matter. what you call it if you don't call it a game or you know if you have to know how sensitive your people are to different kinds of things and to use the right word that word is also a metaphor it means something and it means different things to different people and so sometimes you have to practice to say well let's try this one will that work and maybe not so well mm -hmm. anyway. it, it can go astray can't it i mean we've all well, learned that psychological yes. safety is an incredibly important thing yes. but then people think that psychological safety means being nice to people giving them bean yeah. bags and ice cream yeah that's right and, no, <laughs> and, and some people don't like that. They get unhappy with it. I mean, there yes. are plenty of technical people who have low tolerance for a lot of things that agilists bring into the workplace, and they don't like it at all. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So I guess that's the other thing that I guess we could call that a positive is that people are different. Yes. It, se it seems so obvious. But there's plenty of scientific evidence. If you look at the work of E.M. Rogers, who said, okay, we can identify the innovators and the early adopters and the early majority and the late men. Everybody's heard of that, but they somehow ignore that. And they skip the part that says, you know, this response is hardwired. It kept us alive. The idea that some people are gonna be accepting of an idea just because it's new and something different and they, they want to try new things. And some people are going to resist just because it's a new idea. And that's the way it is. And, and that approach to new things meant that in the Stone Age, when somebody had some kind of new food and, and the innovators ate it and the laggards never did, that somebody would survive just in case this food turned out to be in the long run and we might not discover it until tomorrow or the next day or the next week, that it would be bad. So to use that, to use that difference and to say they're never all going to be alike. Mm. You're never going to have an organization that is all going to be doing, even if they love it, they're never all going to be doing the same thing in the same way at the same time. Some people are going to be innovative. They're going to constantly change it. They're going to be constantly experimenting. Some people are still resistant. They're going to hang on to the old things as long as possible. But that is good. Let all of those different groups of people do what they can do. That will get the best out of all these different groups of people 
And you'll learn more than if they all sign up to say, yes, we're all going to do the same thing in exactly the same way, which is impossible anyway. But to allow it, to encourage it, that's real diversity. Let's say we don't have to be the same. We can't be the same. And that's a good thing. That's a positive thing. We've already acknowledged that we're dealing with complex adaptive systems. And if you're going to deal with that, you need to run experiments. A way of thinking of that is if you have all of these different minds, it's like each one is running its own experiment. You're actually much more likely to get a successful outcome from a very diverse set of minds working on a problem than you are by trying to follow the bouncing ball the same way every time. Exactly right. And then if, if they can talk to each other, if they can say that if the, inno- the innovators love to do this and they say, well, we tried this and it didn't work or, or we tried this and this part seemed to be okay and that part wasn't, then what do you think? And to let everybody own a little piece of that and on their own, I guess their own speed in their own way to be comfortable with trying that means that the whole organization will be much more successful than if there's this demand that, I don't know where this is coming from exactly, but the idea that, yeah, we all do the same. No, it's impossible. I thought we'd gotten rid of that uh, CMMI level, but I guess it's back. (laughs) Well, I think, you know, you said it's exactly right in the sense it's from this uh, line job kind of uh, environment to a thinking or the you know, knowledge-based environment. And yeah. knowledge-based environment is absolutely completely variant at every level of the, uh, even, even in your own mind, yeah. you react differently at a different situation. So yeah. uh, I think you know, there is no one size fits all when you go into the knowledge type of things. Yeah. The, the pattern in, in fearless change is called personal touch. That if you think you're going to change an organization by doing a series of steps or following the application of a bunch of patterns without realizing that everyone is asking the question that you mentioned earlier, which is what's in it for me? And the answer to that is different for every person. So that means you have to not only walk in their shoes, You have to kind of live in their skin to understand, well, how do they see the world? What are they worried about? And that means we're back to listening again. It's only by recognizing and and working with those differences. But we somehow, there's something in us, I think, that wants to categorize. And we want to put them all in a box and label it and say, oh, well, those people, those people, they think this way. And, you know, they're not very smart or we can't, they can't possibly do this or we have to tell them what to do. When we know evidence shows that if you let people have some control over their decisions and you provide them the resources they need to do a good job, most people, maybe not a hundred percent, but we have to believe that most people are okay and they want to do a good job that has to be the foundation i think yeah i remember you know when they were doing the change management kind of thing they were like 
oh, you have the collaborators, you have the registers, you have, oh, yeah. and those compartmentalization is such a big myth. Yeah. Because mm -hmm. you can't put people in <laughs> just four or five different categories and yeah. apply the same formula to everyone. Yeah. And even, even Roger's work showed that people do move out of those categories over time. Someone who might have started out as a laggard on a project can move up to be maybe even early majority over time. And that some people who are innovators over time, as they get older, they get a little more resistant. They're not so excited about new things anymore. So it's not that you, you have a, a hologram stamped in your forehead that says, I am an innovator. People do have some flexibility. What his work showed was that for any innovation, you're going to typically get this response, but it might come from different people. Somebody who might be an innovator in one situation would be a laggard in another. Nobody is any one of those. In fact, now all of behavioral economics is saying nobody is anything. And it depends on the context. I might be a really nice person in some situations and in other situations, I might be angry and frustrated and aggressive, even violent. I'm just about ready to teach a class on influence and I always hate to get to the experiments that Stanley Milgram did way back after the Second World War where he showed that we would all we would all go all the way to 450 volts to torture an innocent person who was screaming, please, please stop this, please stop. We would do it. If we were in the right context. Mm -hmm. So nobody, nobody is anything. Nice, intelligent, stupid, kind, loving we're context driven <laughs> and, and we are complex adaptive systems ourselves <laughs> yep. yep i would imagine if we looked at this screen and started counting complex adaptive systems we'd probably run up to dozens if not hundreds and it would just start with us four wouldn't it Absolutely. yeah that the, the milgram experiments classic isn't it i mean if if somebody with the authority of being the scientist in charge with their clipboard and white coat can get people to do that. It's small wonder that you see some of the dysfunction when you've got senior people, who knows what drove them to be senior? Yep. Who knows what demons of their own they're feeding and how they're actually operating in the workplace? Um, of course they can get people to do just yep. crazy things. Yeah. It's, it's such a shame because there are, there are real leaders out there, leaders who are not do as I tell you, but leaders who are, there is an, a thing worthwhile doing. And I'm going to let you go, guys know why it's worthwhile doing, and I'm going to make sure that you get everything you need to get it done. Yes, exactly. Oh. And of course, what we have to remember about Milgram's experiments is that it was never 100%. Oh, thank goodness. There were some people who refused. Yeah. And if you just change the context a little bit, all you had to do was, for instance, have two 
guys with clipboards and white coats, and they only had to disagree once. So when the guy in the other room started screaming and one of the researchers would say, well, I don't know, maybe we should stop. Then the other one would say, no, no, we must continue. That was enough. No subject ever went beyond the, the current voltage level after that. They said, that's it, I'm not, I'm not doing it. Linda, I think you've just told a story that's a metaphor for the origin story of all of us Agile coaches, haven't you? Yeah, there we yeah. go. We all saw our Milgram experiments and went, whoa, enough. I, there's got to be, whoa. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. So that, that, that's, that's, I think there's a hopeful thing. Yes. That, yes, we are context sensitive, but we do, there is something in all of us. That was 100% in all of us who would say, I don't want to do this. I'm looking for a way out. And when I see that, I'm out of here. Because that's yep. what his experiments also showed. And by the way, there's this problem in psychology anyway with replication. They're trying to go back and repeat some of the classic experiments. And some of them are not proving true. But the Milgram experiment has just been replicated. And the results were exactly the same. Sometimes we look at some of those early experiments and we think, oh, well, people are different now. They don't react to authority in the same way mm -hmm. they do. Exactly. Mm -hmm. the, the percentages are exactly the same. Wow. And this is what we're <laughs> up against. We're getting close to, to the end of our hour. You know that whole thing of primacy, recency? People will remember the first thing we talked about. They're going to remember the last thing that we talk about. Linda, what's the last thing that you want to leave people with as we get to the end of our hour with you? So when uh, the 2016 election happened in the United States, I felt compelled to somehow either get involved in politics or with some organization that was going to help me resolve the problems that I saw in the United States. So I joined an organization called Braver Angels. And what they do is allow you to have conversations with people that you normally would not. So we've had a really nice conversation. And over the pandemic, I've had so many good conversations with people over Zoom, but they've basically all been with people who pretty much saw the world the way I do. And that's how we all live by pretty much hanging out with, either in our workplace or in our family, with people who see the world the way we do. And if we do happen to run into say some obstreperous uncle at Thanksgiving, you know, we don't talk to that person or we ignore them somehow. So we don't really have conversations with people who don't see the world the way we do. So in Braver Angels, and I've had a lot of work with facilitation, negotiation, work and change, scientific evidence about influence. And those conversations are some of the hardest work I have ever done, but also the most rewarding. So we have to find some way for all of us to get out of our little bubbles 
and talk to people who see the world differently and to do so in a way that allows us not to judge, but to be curious and come away with a feeling of respect. Not that I'm gonna advocate for having AK-47s in the schoolyard, but to have a conversation with somebody who does. I think that was one of the most enlightening things that I've ever experienced. I still remember it. So we've got to find a way to do that. Whether it's talking to somebody who doesn't like Agile or somebody who doesn't believe the same way we do about some of the very contentious issues that we face today. Because the penalty is that we're going to be even more divided. Because if we don't talk to each other, then we put those people in a box. We put a label on that box and we lock it and we never look inside. We don't care about those people and we think that they have nothing to add to the conversation. We can't afford that. We have to do a better job. Surely those of us who are agile, who are agile because we believe that this is a, a way forward, why we can't apply that to the broader context. Thank you, Linda. I'm gonna paraphrase the Agile Manifesto. We are uncovering better ways of living by doing it and helping others do it. Amen. Amen. <laughs> Guys, uh, any last questions or words from you? I was just going to say, uh, I would like Linda to be the president of the US, if <laughs> no, not the no, world. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> it's one of my running gags. It would no, all be no. different if we were in charge. <laughs> I just don't want to be in charge. <laughs> no, no, thank you. No, thank you. But I appreciate the sentiment. It's been a pleasure, guys. It's been a delight. Yeah. Thank you, Linda. Absolutely. So I want you all to be safe. And I hope Someday, somewhere, somehow, soon, we can all be together again.